Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Are you really waiting for anything? If you get it every 48 to 72 hours, it is another edition of the Late Kick Extra podcast. It is Wednesday morning, May 11th, the year of our Lord, 2022. Jam-packed as always. We are high atop downtown Nashville, Tennessee. Why? Well, because I'm not in the ratchety confines of my apartment, but rather in the fancy, shiny studio, one of many that CBS has been so nice as to build for us. Some of this will be on video if you want to check it out on the YouTube channel later. The drive to 100K continues as management has promised through me a special surprise awaits us if we hit 100K. And uh, we're well on our way to doing it, so I appreciate you guys. If you haven't already, the YouTube channel, 24-7 Sports YouTube. Subscribe there. I have gotten maybe just a little bit of an inkling of a hint as to what that surprise is, and if I'm right, you're going to want to go ahead and hit 100K as fast as possible. If not for yourself, just do it for me. In the meantime, the mailbag is loaded as loaded can be at Late Kick Josh, Instagram and Twitter. That is the way to submit a question. First up this morning, we're going to talk about the Clemson Tigers to lead it off. From the great state of Florida, the question. I struggle to understand why Clemson is still predicted by many to make the college football playoff. That's kind of a statement. He continues, haven't seen enough from them to make me hop on the train I think they missed the ACC championship game for the second year in a row. Let's just break this down in reverse order. So let's say we're sitting here in December. As Clemson, currently with the fourth best odds to win the national championship, mind you, misses the ACC championship game again. Remember how big a surprise that was? Do you remember last December? Forget about this December. Do you remember last December? And remember the previous August as we just keep going further and further back in time? Remember how big a slam dunk it was? Even I thought so. I think we sat on this very show, or Late Kick Live at least, and in the white t-shirt, I asked, what would have to happen, absent catastrophic injury, for this team to miss the playoff, much less the ACC championship game? And like we were talking about, outside of like DJ Uyangalale being hurt, who we thought was going to be an All-American at the time, I, no one saw any way it could happen, because even if Clemson had a down year, quote-unquote, who was going to step up and take their spot? Well, they lost two games, and they had a down year to the point where they didn't even play for the ACC championship. So anyway, that happened last year. But then you come out, and you know you got the whole talking point around the program that we're better for that, we're going to learn from it. And like I said a couple of minutes ago, we come into this year, Caesars right now I think has them as the fourth best odds to win the national championship. That's probably going to be reflected throughout the betting market. Say all that to tee us back up to the question, what if they miss it again? If they miss it again, 
it kind of reverts back to the point that I've continued to make with Clemson that that makes them one of, with Texas, the most interesting programs in the country this year because of the possibility that that could happen. Because of the possibility that Clemson could miss out on the ACC championship game. And then what we would have is that Tiger Paw, which has come to be one of the premier brands in college football, would for the second consecutive year be down to the point where they miss even playing for a title in a very, very winnable conference. And all of a sudden you start asking, is everything about Clemson being a superpower in the rearview mirror? Have we seen the rise and then the peak and now kind of the waning, if you will, of Clemson as a superpower? Now, everybody around Clemson is going to say no. I'm, I'm inclined to say no as well. Maybe not quite as emphatic as the locals there. I don't think they're done. No, I don't think that by any stretch. But also, I think Alabama has warped a lot of the way we watch the sport. You think about Alabama. They've been on a sustained run of excellence for a decade and a half. Okay, so then you frame everyone else against that backdrop. And because this team, because Clemson under Dabo, has been able to beat them twice, they've been the one that's gone head-to-head with Bama most effectively. You just you think, well, there's no way they're done. There's no way, because Bama's done it this long, so there's no way Clemson just did it that long. But yet, in reality, what history shows us is most runs aren't sustained, like the Bama decade-and-a-half-plus run. USC, at their very best, how long was that? It felt like forever when you were in it, but it was a few years. That's, that's all it was. So, you can go back and think about any of them, but there, there are more so many dynasties in college football than these long extended dynasties. But if you're 21 years old, like a bunch of our college listeners, all you know in terms of college football dynasty is Bama. So you think if Clemson's well on their way to it, no, there's no way they're done. So I can get people uh, who root against them because you know if, if you win a lot, you got people who root against you. But I also understand the people who don't really care, they don't love or hate Clemson, but they may just need to see a little more, because that's where I am. Uh, In fact, I will go a step further. I kind of pull for the program, because more and more so I've gravitated towards some of Dabo Swinney's way of thinking about the sport. And like I've told you before, even when I disagree with him, I respect that I know his motives are best intentioned for the game overall. That's that's my opinion of him. But anyway, when I look at Clemson, now, I don't, I don't think that they're out of things by any stretch of the imagination, but if they are, you know, if that has been uh, the pinnacle and we've seen it and now they just kind of become another really good team in the ACC, hey, that doesn't just impact Clemson. Then all of a sudden we're talking about, well, any of a number of programs. We're talking about Mike Norvell in Florida State. We're talking about Mario Cristobal at Miami. We're certainly talking about Pitt, uh, both the Virginia schools, North Carolina, NC State. That could be this year. They win the ACC if, if the aforementioned scenario were to play out. So currently, Clemson with a plus 1,400 shot at winning the national championship. That's winning the whole thing. We'll see. I don't think it would be the wildest thing if they miss out again this year. But if they do miss out again this year, it would be the biggest headline, barring something uh, really, really big happening in the sport. So that's how we lead it off today. I appreciate you guys being tuned in wherever you are. We've got folks watching in Racine, which was only known to me because of a league of their own. That's uh, what, what, Illinois, Racine, Illinois, I think, or Wisconsin. There's a lot of girls-only baseball teams in that league that were in that portion of the country. Also, Helena, Montana, tune in, and Denver, Colorado, tune in. Thank you guys so much. Next up this morning, 
How about this question from Castilian Springs, Tennessee. Of these hopeful SEC fan bases, whose 2023 mood tracker will look the most negative? You know the theme on this show. We don't normally like to go negative, but in Castilian Springs, if they want us to go negative for a second, okay, I'll play along. And the question there centers around mood tracker, which is a segment that we do, trademark. It's a segment we do and we do alone now because I just trademarked it, wherein we just talk about what the mood of the fan base is. Well, this question is not about this year. To reiterate, this question is about 2023. Which of these fan bases will have the most sour mood tracker entering 2023? And I'll tell you who I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be LSU. But that's not me selling LSU. This is where all the this is where all the qualifiers have to come in because it sounds like I'm down on LSU. I'm not at all. What I do think there is a chance of is there's a chance there may be a little bit disproportionate level of expectation because there's so much hype around Brian Kelly coming in. Uh, there is on this show too. I'm very, very high on Brian Kelly. But there are a lot of holes to fill at LSU and they do not have an easy schedule. They never do. So here's what I'm thinking out loud. I'm thinking there could be a seven and five season in the cards this year. Seven and five, eight and four. I think that they would handle eight and four fairly well. But I'm just wondering if there's a chunk of the LSU fan base, a fan base I'm very fond of, but I also know you guys. If there's a seven and five season this year, are you thrilled in February? Are you thrilled in March? Because that's where we're talking about this. We're talking about in the future. What's your mood towards the program? Because you know as well as I do what's going to happen if LSU is on track to go seven and five. Let's just say that were to happen you know the talk would start. It would start from Tuscaloosa to Auburn to College Station to Fayetteville, everywhere in between, and they'd be laughing because remember how you guys hyped up Brian Kelly and remember how he was going to be the savior of LSU football? Remember how he was going to fix all of Ed's, Ed Orgeron's mess? Hey, it looks the same to me. Can't tell much difference from here. That will be the talk outside of Baton Rouge. Does it seep in at all? I would encourage you to ignore it, as I always do, but I do think when you think about the, just the November that they're going to face, and I'll take it a couple of weeks. In fact, my goodness, you know, as I'm looking at their schedule, if, if you're watching the individual video we do of this, let me read the last few games. <laughs> Starting on, what is that, October 1st, last two months of the season, they go to Auburn, then Tennessee next week, then at Florida the next week, then Ole Miss the next week. Then there's a bye, thank the Lord. Then they have Alabama at Arkansas, UAB is perennially one of the best teams in Conference USA, and at Texas A&M to end the season. And I got news for you. I will include UAB on this. The last one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, the last nine games, there's no easy game there. They start with FSU, Southern, Mississippi State, New Mexico. So you very well could be looking at a 4-0 start here, which could end up being fool's gold as it relates to the way that you end the season. They better get fat in the first month of the season too. So if you are to finish 6-6 six and six or 7-5, a majority of the losses will have come on the back half of the schedule. So you will not have finished hot, in other words. And therefore, that could put a false damper on the mood. Because long term, if they go 6-6 six and six this year, it doesn't impact my opinion on what they're capable of under Brian Kelly. I'll still have sky-high expectations about the future, understanding all the while, if there's a bump in the road, hey, Saban had one, Kirby Smart had one, those dudes just played for a national championship. Uh, they've both played for multiple national championships. It happens. LSU's not immune to that. In fact, I would be shocked if they didn't have one of those bump-in-the-road seasons this year. It's not a bump. It's, it's a filtration process. It's like a cleaning-out process. 
You don't just get to hit the reset button. That's why it's so consequential when you make hires and those hires make decisions. And sometimes they pay off and sometimes they don't, but the reverberations are felt well past just one season. It's like a ripple effect that goes out several seasons. That's why we pay so much attention to this stuff. That's why we make such a big deal about hires and about recruiting and about roster moves. Because it's not like if you make a mistake, it just gets erased five minutes later. You deal with it. Uh, they're going to deal with roster consequences of what the previous administration did for a year or two at least. And that's with the NCAA uh, offering some guidance that may relieve some of these scholarship situations and roster situations for a little while. So I think it could be LSU. I can say the same thing about South Carolina, though. The question was about who's going to have the most sour mood tracker. Listen, South Carolina won seven games last year, and they surprised a lot of people. But then you look at their schedule this year, and they're going to be an underdog six or seven times maybe. What if they go six and six? The perception will be that they fell backwards. I, that doesn't always mean that. That does not always mean that. It's just it's so tough to year over year compare teams and their strength of schedule. That's not even taking into account the bounce of ball and the injuries and stuff like that. So I know they tell you you are what your record says you are. JP here is telling you you are not always what your record says you are. And that's where I'll leave that. Let's move on. Uh, that, that, was the, that was the glass half empty portion of the pod this morning. Let's talk glass half full. Cade wants to know, what's the most underrated stadium you've been to? I would love to have you out to Carter-Finley Stadium one game this year from Lewisburg, North Carolina. I appreciate the invitation, and we're going to bookmark that because we don't ever know where we're going. I could not tell you right now, outside of a pretty good guess for a few weeks of the year, where we're going to be this fall. We don't even have the late kick 2022 tour named yet. The Renaissance Tour last year was great, so you know I might as well start putting out the call to action now. We need a name for the 2022 tour. And might it come to Carter-Finley Stadium? Maybe. We'll see. Uh, but like I said, we don't know about the schedule yet. But I can tell you what the most underrated stadium I've been to is. Especially for a game day atmosphere, it's Williams-Brice Stadium. It's in South Carolina. It's in Columbia. I think they are a victim of the conference they play in. They're a beneficiary of it. And they are a beneficiary of... Also, you know, a red-hot, passionate fan base over there, and so they invest, and they invest, and they invest. But see, when you hear SEC stadiums, of course, you think about LSU, um, you think about Alabama, you think about Georgia, you think about Tennessee, you think about the Swamp, Florida, like Auburn's got a really, really good game day atmosphere, but you know about all those. People talk about them all the time. People don't talk about Williams-Brice Stadium nearly as much as they should. I've been up there for big games. I've been there when they played Georgia. I've been there when they played Alabama. And each time I found myself standing on the field where I'm blessed enough to be able to watch the games from, looking around saying, if this existed in another conference, they would tout it like it's the end-all be-all. Because when they wave those towels, when they play Sandstorm, when, when it's third down and three in Williams-Brice Stadium, you can't hear anything. If you close your eyes and you're in that stadium, and you didn't know what your surroundings were, you would think you're at one of those other big venues. You would think you're at Kyle Field. You would think you're in Bryant-Denny Stadium. Because South Carolina fans more than do their part on game day to make that place a really, really intimidating environment. Last time I was there, I think it was two years ago, maybe three years ago, Alabama was in there. And I remember I did something I wasn't supposed to do. Whatever, sue me. I was outside the visitor's locker room right before the game. I was outside Bama's locker room. So, um, statue of limitations, as we like to call it on this show, has passed. So I'll tell you, I, as Bama's coming out of the locker room and they're walking up the tunnel, 
I looked to the left, I looked to the right, I took the iJosh, I pressed record, and I just hopped right in with Bama. I still have this footage on my phone. I probably should have given it to Colin. I'll probably post this later. I was just rolling. Now let me hold the phone up for the video. I'm just rolling on the phone, and I walk up the tunnel with Bama, take the field with him. Then, of course, I, I jutted off to the left so as to not be arrested. But I got to, you know, basically feel what the road team feels in a, in a very hostile environment there at Williams-Brice Stadium when they take the field. It's not fun. Wouldn't want my parents, especially my mom, to be exposed to the sorts of things that we, you know, me in Alabama, what we heard when we took the field that afternoon. And look, Bama ended up winning that game fairly comfortably, as I remember, but the place was still just on fire. The time I had been there before that, Georgia was in there and South Carolina beat them. And I remember being on the field, you know, I've only said what I'm about to say about LSU, but I remember being on the field, it was right at that 3.30 Eastern time kick, so late in those games, one of the hallmarks, one of the staples of the Saturday 3.30 SEC game of the week is you start the game in sunlight, and by the time you wrap it up, it's either twilight or it's nighttime. So the sun goes down during the game. Well, that was one of those 3.30 kickoffs. So South Carolina beats Georgia, it's a close game, so it's, it's wire to wire. And I remember it's, it's nighttime, and that student section's totally and fully lubricated, and they're into the game, and there was a bad call, so some stuff rained down on the field. I know you people think they only do that in Knoxville, but yeah, it has happened elsewhere. It wasn't quite as bad as that night, though. But when they won, they didn't storm the field, but I thought we were going to see a field storming, and I just, I remember thinking to myself, that was one of the first couple of years where I got to go to games, saying, South Carolina... Uh, left an impression on me today. I went home and I said, Dear Diary, Williams-Brice Stadium impressed me today. And it did. So I would encourage you guys who look for a stadium to go to every year that's not your home stadium and maybe it's not your team going into that road stadium. You just want to experience stuff. Go to a game at South Carolina. Uh, tr try and make it early in the year so you're sure that everyone will be into it. I'm not saying it doesn't wane. I'm not saying that they're immune to having a bad season. But man, if you get that place when it's fully jacked up, that's about as good as any place in the SEC. And I know a lot of you don't believe me when I say that, but it is. All right, let's, uh, let's roll on here. Mm, this is a tough one. Let me, let me gather myself for a second, only because of what this is going to mean. You know, I know a lot of you ask this question that Logan's about to ask, but are you really prepared for the answer? That's, that's what I leave you. So here we go. Logan asks, what do you think will happen to the college football landscape when Nick Saban retires from middle of nowhere, Tennessee? Well, in Tennessee, which is the state that I happen to reside in, that will happen. If you're, if you're watching the video, there's just confetti all over the place. I really think a state holiday would be declared. He has waged war on this state for the better part of two decades. I guess we're going on 16 years now. I, listen, Louisiana Monroe has a better record against Saban than Tennessee does. That's, that's a stat. That's a real life stat. He is, however long he's been there, 15 years, 16 years, he is that number and O against Tennessee. So in Tennessee, it would be a holiday. Uh, all across the SEC, they would, I think they would um, not respond the way that they say they would respond. You know what I mean? Like, I think a lot of folks around college football, they, they wake up every morning and they check their phone. Dang, man, he didn't retire today. Yeah, I know most of you not named Alabama want him gone. Like, Bama fans want him to stay forever and everyone else wants him gone. But that's only because he's really, really good. But you also, most of you at least, have this different side of you that's there, whether you know it or not, that supremely respects what he's done. So I want you to imagine for a second 
the day where this actually happens. You would have an excitement because now everyone proportionally is going to have a better shot at, at coming out of under this carpet that's been over us where we can barely breathe for like the last decade and a half. But then you would realize something else. You would realize, hold up. The greatest of all time just retired. And I got to see him. I lived through it. See, I remember, I think I've told this story a bunch, but I remember when I was a little kid, I, I was not born until after Paul Bear Bryant had passed away. So when I was a little kid, we always heard stories about Bear Bryant, Bear Bryant. Um, like if you're a Notre Dame fan, you probably heard stories about Parsagian or, or you heard stories about Newt Rotney from a couple of generations prior. But you didn't get to see them. You know, if you're a younger person, you didn't get to see them. Well, now everyone who is, who is living got to see him. So if he retires tomorrow, yeah, you may be excited because uh, the University of Arkansas has a better shot at winning. But man, I think there's another side of me and I think a lot of our audience and just college football fans in general that'll sit back for a second and go, whoa, like I know I wanted this to happen. And it's not like I'm wishing he changed his mind, but let me just appreciate for a second what just ended. Like the greatest run that we'll ever see in this sport just ended. If we see a better one than that, I'll just be happy to come on the show, whatever it looks like, like 30 years from now and say, yeah, I was wrong. He got outdone. I don't think he'll ever be outdone. So whatever, whatever his run ends up being, I think it's going to be the greatest of all time. So I think the reaction is going to be that of immense pouring out of respect for uh, Nick Saban from the college football public. And I think that that will probably overwhelm some people compared to what you expect the reaction to be. I mean, I think it will completely and totally get wall-to-wall -wall coverage. I think it'll get mainstream news coverage. So I think whether you turn on SportsCenter or the NBC Nightly News, you will see that Nick Saban is retired. There aren't many figures like that in sports. And there are especially not many figures like that in college football. Now, I hope that this is a long ways down the road. But whenever it happens, as it pertains to on-the-field matters, let me tell you what else I think it'll do. I think it'll immediately inject more competitive balance into the landscape of the sport. And I think a segment that we did last week on Late Kick Live will prove to be true. You'll realize all of a sudden, no team is dominating. There's some, good, there's some really good teams. There's still a Tier 1, but it'll totally be redefined. Like there was a Tier 1 before Saban got to Bama, but that was during a stretch where we had 10 different championship teams in a 12-year period. So we had different teams contending. We had different teams capable of winning. We'll have that again when he leaves. And what you'll look around and realize is we made all this commotion. We demanded all this change in the sport and, and unfortunately, in my opinion, got a lot of it. And all we needed was him to retire this whole time. It turns out college football really did just have a Nick Saban problem, problem in air quotes for those listening on podcast. I think it will be a landmark day in the history of the sport if and when he retires. And then the great unknown is what's he going to do? We're recording this in a week where it was just announced that Tom Brady, when he retires, will step into the number one lead analyst role for Fox NFL in the broadcast booth for about 20 to 25 million a year, by the way. So, so good for Tom. It, it really calms my nerves that he won't be hurting for money. But also, what's Nick Saban gonna do? There has long been rumor in our world that there's an offer, there are multiple offers waiting for him. That's just kind of 
not even speculated. It's just kind of known in our world that there, there are offers. I would imagine, and I'm not confirming this one. This is speculation on my part. I would imagine there's a pretty popular Saturday morning college football show that has a chair waiting for him and probably has a check with a blank in the dollar amount that he can just fill in anytime he wants to. So I think just as much as it's interesting what it would do to the sport, I think it's interesting what he would do because he can really choose to do whatever he wants to, including perhaps co-hosting an episode or two of Late Kick. We'll see. Well, you know how our policy is with guests. So we'll see. I will say this, though. like Nick Saban's good at many things. He is, he's very good at coaching. He's very good at leadership. But I don't even know if he's good enough to do this. We'll be right back. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Victim mentality. A lot of people poo-poo it, but every single one of you has it because not a one of you knew that ad toss was coming. If you say you did, you're lying. You know it. I know it. Don't do that because I know this is a tough scene. Back-to-back episodes of Late Kick Extra, this is a tough scene. It's a tough burden for all of you to bear, but it's talent. It's talent. Barry Bonds was disproportionately blessed to be able to hit a baseball a long way. I have been disproportionately blessed to sneak an ad toss in on you without anyone knowing. Way in on your hands to steal a baseball term. So it's okay. Let's get back to matters that we can all agree on. Gatorfan underscore actual asks, do you think that we will see locker room turmoil when the NIL giants don't produce? We should probably trademark NIL giants, by the way. Uh, So he says, will we see some turmoil when they don't produce, but the average Jimmy and Joe does? But Jimmy and Joe are not getting NIL money. So what do we think about that? I think that this has always happened. And we're going with the classic Bo Nix with a box of Bojangles in front of him and Bryce Young with some Quiznos as I talk about this. Or Subway. My bad. My bad, Subway. So I think it's always happened. And what I mean by that is I think we've always had locker room turmoil. I think the only currency is, is attention. Because really, it's not so much are you getting advertising dollars. It's what that means. It means some guys are getting more attention than other guys. That's what rubs some folks the wrong way. But as I said, when NIL first started being floated, and now that we've gotten into it, I didn't believe then, and I don't believe now, 
that NIL was going to disrupt any locker room that wasn't already prone to being disrupted without NIL. NIL is not the determining factor. Poor culture is the determining factor. I know that because we've had locker rooms fracture and come apart long before NIL ever came around. You could say to yourself, yeah, okay, but that's because there were $100 handshakes and under-the-table payments happening before then. Okay, okay, you can't prove that, but yeah, we all know that happened. But my point is, I'll play devil's advocate with you. Let's say everything you're alleging is true. You just made my point for me, didn't you? You told me there was already a cash and payment system in place beforehand, and some guys who were good were getting more attention than other guys who weren't perceived to be as good or valuable. And some teams were able to win and chug merrily along with that formula, and other teams got ripped apart at the seams. And so what determined that? What was the determining factor? It wasn't the money. Some programs had it, and they were fine. Other programs had it, and they, they imploded on themselves like a dying star. So what was the determining factor? Culture is the determining factor. It goes back to that whole good soil, bad soil thing. You got good soil, doesn't guarantee a thing. But if you got bad soil, it does guarantee something. And it's not a good thing that it guarantees. So yeah, I think you're gonna have some big name players get some big money and some of them are gonna go places and they're gonna shine and every one of their teammates will talk them up and tout them and they'll talk about how they're a team player. And then other places, you'll see that five-star guy that signed a six or seven figure deal go down in the middle of a game and you'll see his teammates around him and none of them will be quick to help him up and you'll know, oh, oh boy, well I, that stood out, didn't it? That's always the tell, by the way, when you see a guy score a touchdown, how quickly do the teammates rush to him to celebrate with him? Or when you see a guy down on the ground, how quick are his teammates to pick him up? Now if you've ever played, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you haven't played, still makes a lot of sense to you, doesn't it? Those are the tells. It's not in, it's not at SEC or Big Ten Media Days when a reporter asks, hey, what do you think about Jeff? What do you think about Steve? What do you think about Dominique? Everybody's going to say what they're supposed to in that setting because they've been coached how to talk. But when it's real and it's genuine, it's just authentic and it's, it's in the middle of the heat of battle, you find out how someone feels about their teammates. And I, I am not mentioning names. I'm just not going to do it. Sorry. But I remember it was a pretty big deal a couple of years ago when, uh, I'll tell you who it was. It was Spencer Rattler. It was uh, either last year or a couple of years ago. There was a play. A lot of people pointed this out. He goes down. I want to say he may have even scored a touchdown, but he's on the ground and he gets up and no one, no one celebrated with him, really. Now, it goes to show you that what we ended up hearing about some of the internal dynamics at Oklahoma were probably true. I don't think that's just anecdotal. I think there probably was a lot going on behind the scenes there. Now, for his part in all that, I think he's better for it. And I think even if he's not, he has a chance to be better for it at South Carolina. He's not 85 years old, okay? He's still a college kid. So maybe he did make a mistake or three in the way he handled himself at Oklahoma or handled himself in high school. Well, you know what would be a really good story? is for South Carolina to win nine games this year, led by Spencer Rattler, who contends for all SEC honors, and then in the postseason interview circuit, steps to a microphone and says, you know, I figured some things out in the process of coming here. I'm so glad that it happened. I wouldn't change a thing. That would be a very happy ending to that story. But it also illustrates the point I was making. Watch for that kind of stuff. If you want to know what NIL is doing to a locker room or you want to know the status of a locker room, watch for that kind of stuff. Next up, it's a good question though. It's a really good question. Michael Gold from Pembroke Pines, Florida. He says, everyone knows how important talented recruiting classes are, but 
Can they be so important that they can make coaches better as compared to coaches who have less of an arsenal to play around with? The perception is yes. The reality is no, you are who you are as a coach. But what is a college coach? What's a college football coach? One of the lamest things that anyone has ever alleged in the history of talking about or covering this game is so-and-so's not a good coach. He just has all the talent. Okay, so what are we even saying there? Because a huge portion of the day-to-day -day responsibilities for a college coach involve recruiting, talent acquisition. Like you, you quite literally, there's the phrase of the year, you quite literally go out and get your players. You recruit your players. That is part of it. And so, like if I build the car and then drive the car really fast, you don't look at it and say, that car's only going fast because it's built that way. I built it. Yeah, it's going fast. So congrats to me. So if you've got a guy, if you got Kirby Smart winning a national championship last year, I don't look at him and say, well, that's easy to do with all the talent in the world. Well, that's complete garbage because Texas has a, a bunch of good recruiting classes stacked on top of each other in Austin. How have they done lately? So it's obviously about more than just having talent. But even if it was just about having talent, who went and got the talent? Kirby didn't step in after someone else acquired it and said, all right, I'll take it from here. No coach who's winning championships is doing that. Because talent acquisition and the evaluation process before that and then the development process after that is a key component or multiple components of what it takes to win. So the question was, can having more talent make a coach better? Having the talent is part of what makes the coach. I think the perception of folks out there could be directly tied to how much a coach achieves on the field and sometimes that scale is not calibrated properly like i never look at matt campbell at iowa state and uh ryan day at ohio state and judge them the same because they don't have the same opportunities i mean realistically they're allowed to go sit in the same living rooms for the same kids but if a kid gets an offer from both nine times out of ten he's choosing ohio state because that's just the way it is and Ohio State is much better resourced. Now, people who cover the sport understand that and who follow the sport understand that, but at the same time, that should also free you up to watch Ryan Day go 11 and one, and maybe Matt Campbell goes eight and four, and understand, wow, both of those guys just did really good coaching jobs. I remember back when I was in college, Nick Saban came uh, down to Columbus, Georgia, right across the street from where I was in school one year. And he spoke, it's when he was first at Alabama, I think, and he spoke about what makes a good coach. And someone asked him, he was taking questions from the audience, which, which in and of itself is a spectacle to behold. Head coaches taking questions from the audience. One guy asked him about, I mean, one guy actually started to, to engage him about his defensive philosophy. And it, it didn't end well. It really didn't. But someone else asked him about just, you know, what makes you a good coach? Is it more about recruiting or is it more about scheme? And he did what I did right there. He took a deep breath because I don't think he wanted to embarrass the guy, but he said, and a lot of, I know a lot of you out there think that I'm some wizard and, you know, I could pull this grease board out. And yeah, I mean, I could talk your head in a circle because you don't do this every day. But really, when you get inside the game, most of us know the same thing. Some of us have more experience so, you know, if I've been in the game 20 years, yeah, I mean, I got more seasoning about myself than a rookie head coach, but we, everybody knows football at this level. 
What he said is, I figured out a long time ago, the secret's just to go get better players than everybody else. And of course, it popped the room and everyone laughed, but he didn't smile because he kind of was joking, but he wasn't joking. He's saying, look, you can try and out-scheme your way through this league, the SEC, all you want to, but eventually you come up on someone else who can scheme pretty well, but also went out and got a whole lot of good players. And that's kind of redirecting the question a second. That's my biggest concern about Brian Harson at Auburn. My biggest concern about him is not that he doesn't know football. I'm sure he does. Absolutely he does. And it's not that he can't scheme. I, absolutely he can. The problem potentially, still early there, but the potential problem is if you don't recruit better than they have, you cannot outscheme folks in this league because there are too many other staffs that are full of really, really good guys on grease boards, but also good in the living room. So they're just, they're every bit as good on the stovetop as you are, but they're cooking with way better ingredients. So who's going to make the better meal? And even if you outscheme one of them, you got like five or six more of those matchups to go where a, a roster may be more talented than yours on a given Saturday, and yet you're going to try and out-scheme them. Can't do that. So I, I think to go back to the question, yeah, it makes you better if by better you just mean better in the win-loss column, which ultimately is what we're grading guys by at the end of the day, but it, it also has to do a lot with the resources you have to work with and properly calibrating that scale of expectation. Good question there, too. A lot of, you notice that theme around here? A lot of good questions. Ross wants to know how much would the perception of the Pac-12 change if Utah and Oregon win their week one games? Hometown, Vancouver, British Columbia. I think they had a rock bottom 1998 in Vancouver. Anyway, that's not what he asked about. So uh, a lot is the answer, a whole lot. I think we were talking about this in a meeting yesterday and I've been thinking about this. What, what is something, what, what are a couple of things at least that could happen in week one, not the first month, week one of the college football season that would just, it would kind of rock the sport within the confines of the season. And I think it's that. You know, what Ross is talking about is in week one, we have Oregon basically on the road against Georgia. They play in Atlanta. You can call that neutral if you want to. So Oregon plays against Georgia in Atlanta. Utah goes to Gainesville to play Florida in the swamp. Now that's going to be pretty much a pick'em game. Utah may even be favored. So that's not, it's not a wild concept at all that Utah could win that game. It's a brand new staff against one of the most veteran staffs in college football at the Power Five level. That's Billy Napier at Florida versus Kyle Whittingham at Utah. But Utah pulling that off would be one thing. What if, let's just wildly speculate for a second, what if that happened? What if Utah won and Oregon beat Georgia? Because that spread will be around two touchdowns. And if that were to happen, the first thing you see Georgia doing after winning a title is losing as a double-digit favorite in their home state in week one. I think that would send a pretty decent-sized shockwave through the Pac-12. I think George Klykoff, who's the new commissioner out there would probably be at a podium uh, before the sun came up the next morning talking about how his conference has arrived and now we're going to build off this and we're going to brand off this and that's absolutely how they should handle it. But these are both week one games. So you have an opportunity to really make uh, an impact. You have an opportunity to set the tone because see, USC, even though they're not involved in this at all, would greatly benefit from that because USC in the future, cannot be the brand of the Pac-12. 
USC can be the lead dog in the Pac-12. They can be the biggest brand in the Pac-12. But everyone has been talking about Lincoln Riley at USC and how that's going to elevate the Pac-12. It's not elevating the Pac-12 at all. That's elevating USC. Okay, if it's just USC and nothing else out there, they might as well be Notre Dame. Because for all intents and purposes, from the national perspective, it's just like they're another independent program floating out there. But if Oregon is good, and right now they're better than USC, if Utah is good, and right now they're better than USC, or have been, I'm not vouching for the future, I'm just saying I'm not selling these programs short. It's not like USC is a behemoth and they're trying to catch up. It's the other way around. USC is trying to catch up. But yet you also know, like I do, what people are saying. People are saying, oh, it's a matter of time with USC. Well, even if it is, and even if Lincoln Riley does have them at a top five level every year, you need Utah. You need Oregon. It would be nice if Washington would come to the party. It'd be really nice if one of these Arizona schools would get their act together. I don't have my breath held on that. Uh, UCLA, Stanford, you know, it would be nice. Point is, we need them. You need them as a, as a Pac-12 conference overall. You need them. So if we were to have this happen, I don't know how much it would mean for the rest of the year, but I do know if, if Oregon tops Georgia and Utah tops Florida in week one, yeah, I mean, what, what bigger story do you have in week one? Now, I ask that a lot, and then there ends up being a bigger story. So, you know, I'm not holding my breath on that either. But yeah, I think that would be, it would be very, very noteworthy. I appreciate you guys listening this morning. Again, on the back end, let me remind you, 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. We're already above 93. This is not an insurmountable task. And like I said, when we get there, there is big news coming. So as we like to say around here, you know what's coming. Our balls are in your court. I'm Josh Pate for Director Colin, for Producer Jesse, for our entire production team. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day and God bless. to Paramount Plus for a brand new season of the original hit series, Mayor of Kingstown. My job is to create a balance. Avoid a war. From executive producer Taylor Sheridan, co-creator of Yellowstone. There's some new players in town and they brought the flag. And Antoine Fuqua, director of Training Day. I know it's always been a war zone, Mike, but this is next level. The mayor is back in business. Are you warning me? You don't want to find out. Mayor of Kingstown. New season streaming June 2nd, exclusively on Paramount Plus.